Welcome to Insight, the insurance news podcast hosted by me, Andrew Silcox. This week's edition of Insight, we're focusing on the trends behind the latest APRA statistics. Echoing the recent corduroy pillow trend, these are making headlines. Are rising premiums helpful for insurers? Much like the latest trend in glass coffins, it remains to be seen. There's a new trend at work. People are writing names on food in the office fridge. Today, I had a muffin called Benice. What that has to do with trends in life insurance is any listener's guess. And ASIC is taking action against a broker and it's making them angry. You could say it's all the rage. Hello, everyone. This is our 100th podcast. Maybe I should have led with that. Anyway, this week, I'm joined by senior journalist Benice Han, deputy editor Wendy Pugh, editor John Deeks, and chairman Terry McMullen. Hello, Terry. One day I'll take it too far. Is this the time? You can take it as far as you want, Andrew. It's 100 podcasts, and you'd think we must surely be running out of things to comment on now, but that's not happening, is it? And good morning, John. Morning. Can you believe you've listened to these appalling intros for over two years? It's a bit like cricket, I guess. Yeah, we've, we've, we've got a century. <laughs> Hello, Wendy. Good morning, Andrew. Someone told me you're so in tune with the industry trends that if you had a dog, it would be a trendsetter. (laughs) I don't know about that. And hello, Benice. Hi, Andrew. Looking at the articles that you've worked on this week, you must be in John's bad books. Probably. (laughs) So the latest APRA statistics are out. What are the main general insurance trends? One of the key takeaways relates to premium trends, and it's something that this podcast has been discussing fairly regularly in the last year or more. So insurers are pushing through with increases after the historic floods last year and also other disasters. And we've been hearing from the likes of IAG and Suncorp about their plans to raise premiums and it's showing in this latest April stats. So the price adjustments has have helped the industry to achieve about a 69% rise in underwriting profit last year. So that's about $6.8 billion for the 12 months to December. And net profit is about uh, $2.3 billion, up 34% from 2021. So Apple is saying that the price rate increases were most prominent in the fire industrial specialists, public and product liability and professional indemnity product lines. But at the same time, um, you know, th- th- there was also this increase in gross incurred claims uh, and it was most notable in the, in the short tail property classes uh, like householders, domestic and commercial pro- motor and reinsurance classes of business. That's the key trends that we, we're seeing, I, I, I think, are the key takeaways from the Apple stats. Yeah. Well, rising premiums might be helpful for insurers, Terry, but it won't be what consumers or consumer groups want to hear. That's true, Andrew, but because most insurers insurance marketing the public sees anyway is is mainly based on flim flam and and cuteness for personal lines. We tend to ignore the underlying issues of just why Australia needs an insurance industry that's strong and reliable across all sectors. It's not an easy story to sell when people are really doing it hard and businesses need cover to continue operating. We do need to remind Australians occasionally of the industry's role in restoring homes and businesses and the billions of dollars that we're spending really to put things back together again, which incidentally is the slogan from the industry's last TV awareness campaign, which happened way back in the early 1990s. We're not very good at dealing with negative perceptions by accentuating the positive. It would be nice to see that change. And how is the life industry tracking in comparison, Benice? It's a bit of a mixed story, really. As a whole, they made about half billion or 500 million in net profit for the 12 months to December. So that's about 
60% down from 2021. And the reason it fell this much, uh, it's all got to do with uh, investment losses of around 6.6 billion. For comparison's sake, in 2021, the industry made some 3.8 billion in investment profit. So it's because of the realized and unrealized losses on interest-bearing assets that affected the investment uh, returns. But there's some good news too. It's worth noting that the individual disability income insurance uh, product line uh, made about 1.1 billion in net profit. So this particular line was under APRO scrutiny for a few years ago, and it still is. Is the line truly back on demand? Um, I mean, it lost 3.4 billion cumulatively in the five-year period to 2019, and it required APRO actions to stem the losses. So APRO isn't so sure and has recently said that there's still a long way to go before we can be sure that the individual DII line is really back on solid ground. Well, Wendy, in other news, ASIC announced yesterday that it's taking action against a broker. Tell us what the regulator said. ASIC says it's permanently banned a former insurance broker from providing financial services because he directed four clients to pay premiums totaling $41,000 into a, a business account that he controlled instead of the um, the brokerage's trust account. So that the broker, Justin Edward Hampshire of Sydney, was um, acting in his capacity at the time as an AR of Ozshore and as a sole director and shareholder of Balanced Risk, which was an all-corporate AR. Essex says he's also currently facing criminal charges for fraud-related offences after an investigation by New South Wales Police. But just on the banning, he, he still has the right to uh, have uh, ASIC's decision reviewed by the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. 41000 isn't a lot of money to someone like you, Terry. If this is newsworthy, it must be relatively rare for brokers to be accused of this kind of thing. <laughs> Although we have fresh in our collective minds the the relatively recent case of Winley in WA, which had two American principals who made somewhere between twelve and twenty million dollars disappear. It's rare to happen with brokers because if it wasn't rare the regulator would impose rules that could see client money being transferred directly to the insurer. And there's a Senate inquiry into Australia's disaster resilience, Bernice, and insurers have been putting in submissions. Yeah, so um, last we checked, IAG and Suncorp have uh, made their uh, submissions and it's pretty extensive in that they have also attached uh, research reports to support their submissions. Um, so Suncorp says that it welcomes the inquiry's focus on the ongoing capacity and capability of the Australian Defence Force as a workforce model to be deployed during natural disaster events. So Suncorp is calling it an important issue as the country needs to examine the adequacy of the current model and consideration of alternative models. And then in this, in the report that Suncorp provided is rather new. It was only finished in December and focuses on planning for resilience. So it makes uh, eight recommendations and one of them calls for the creation of a, a National Cabinet Reform Committee on Disaster Resilience to improve policy coordination between governments and consider long-term strategic policy priorities. And as for IAG, um, it says that the key to improving resilience is to make sure no new developments are built in harm's way. So if new buildings are not required to consider natural disaster risks, IAG is saying that you know, any savings achieved by mitigation could be eroded by a new or emerging risk. IAG has commissioned research to explore the costs and benefits of planned relocation in flood risk communities. And it's uh, happy to share this research when the report is uh, completed by the end of this month. Yep. 
Well, governments are more on side than they used to be on the mitigation issue, aren't they, John? They definitely are, without a doubt. I mean, we 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 tend not to see the insurer blaming that used to go on these days when when premiums become unaffordable. There's an acceptance now, I think, from most governments that high premiums just reflect high risk. There's all these programs as well. We've got build back and buy back schemes launched in both New South Wales and Queensland. And the federal government has committed 200 million a year, which will hopefully be matched by states and territories for for a five-year period. So there's a lot of progress, but still the industry is pushing because even all of that probably isn't enough. And Munich Re's local MD has been making his views known. Yes, that's right. The the local boss of Munich Re, uh, the reinsurer, Scott Hawkins, has published a, a detailed piece on his LinkedIn talking about the rising cost of insurance and how it's linked to extreme weather events but also talking about what needs to be done about it. You know, he says without mitigation and improved resilience, the premiums to cover the increased risks that we're seeing will get so high that people can't afford them. He said the reasons we're we're in a bit of trouble at the moment is the increasing trends of extreme weather, the fact we continue to build in areas exposed to extreme weather events, and the fact that building standards in many areas just aren't where they should be. Mr Hawkins says that the government is more active and engaged, however, not to a level that is needed to contend with current and probable future impact. And finally, he says that as leaders of the insurance industry, their legacy will be defined by what they do on this issue. So it couldn't be more important, really. Well, Wendy, the Insurance Council has some concerns about the rollout of the consumer data right. Obviously, I'm intimately aware of all of the nuances, but remind us what the consumer data right is and what are insurers worried about? Yes, it's it's meant to give consumers more access and control over the data about themselves that's held in the first instance under CDR by banks. So in allowing that to be shared, it streamlines things like, you know, opening new accounts and switching banks and takes out unnecessary paperwork. And it's meant to be rolled out much more widely, um, moving into energy and telecommunications and in other financial areas like insurance. But there's a there's a bill before Parliament at the moment which aims to kind of power up the whole process. And it gives consumers like the op- option to instruct um, third parties to pursue data sharing activities on their behalf and sort of takes it to another level, but probably in, in banking at this stage. But in, insurers are really just saying, you know, hold on before you roll this out to us, because, you know, insurance isn't the same as banking or, or getting your electricity provider change. You know, insurers hold all sorts of data in different contexts as part of underwriting processes. And there needs to be careful consideration about what is shared so it's not actually detrimental and they're also worried because it's not really clear if you're going to have intermediaries involved how that might affect brokers and you know our ICA says they might have to become accredited what's called accredited action initiators which could involve costs so it would actually be a big hit for a for a small business as many brokers are so i guess you know in hurtling forward with the cdr in banking it's just causing a bit of anxiety when it comes to insurance and ICA is saying well let, let's take time see how it works in banking the government has said that there will be more consultation before cdr is extended but i think they're just very concerned to make sure that their issues aren't getting lost Sharing information with consumers sounds like a good idea, Terry, but would it work in insurance? 
I know it's working in banking, but that doesn't mean it'll be easy to fit into insurance. But this is the way the consumer world's moving. And while the insurance industry is notorious for resisting regulatory moves like this, and they'll need time to make it work, I think we just have to accept it and get on with negotiating exactly how. A Nigerian prince has got all my data anyway. So finally, John, we've had a claims update from New Zealand following the recent large loss events. Yes, that's right. We had some updates from the Insurance Council of New Zealand. And as we expected, we've got not one, but two really, really massive claims events uh, over there. So the Auckland floods, which took place uh, at the end of January, insurers have received 47,936 claims. And the ICNZ reckons that's going to add up to more than a billion dollars. They've already paid out over a hundred million. But of course, this doesn't include the impact of Cyclone Gabrielle, which rolled in about two weeks later. And uh, insurers are expecting another 30,000 claims to be lodged as a result of that. So I guess it wouldn't take a genius to say that overall, we might be heading towards $2 billion in claims. Uh, The Insurance Council says that putting the two events together, it's going to be more claims than the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake, which caused insured losses of $2.27 billion. So yeah, it's clearly going to be a very busy time for insurers, brokers, claimants and everyone who's helping with the recovery process in New Zealand. Well, Tower has said that some areas will become uninsurable if they are rebuilt in the same way. Terry, is it time to accept managed retreat from some areas? Do you think these events will leave a lasting impact on the country? My immediate reaction is to say no, Andrew, because people will always want to build in places where they can easily be blown away, burned down or submerged. And they have short memories and they hope nothing will happen until it does happen. But when I think about the flood-prone Australian suburbs that are being returned to nature and the tough rules we now have for building in bushfire zones, for example, the real answer would have to be yes, it it will have a, a lasting impact on the country. Catastrophes have a lasting impact. If insurers decline to insure buildings in high hazard areas, which is what they're really doing anyway via impossibly high premiums, then you can't really build there. You either build back better, to quote Joe Biden, or you don't build at all. The same rings true for communities and businesses in cyclone-prone areas. So yes, we are learning that high-risk areas should never have been built on and shouldn't continue to be developed. Although some state governments would need to grow a pair and pass laws that really restrain property developers from building in unsafe areas, which would mean giving up quite a lot of money in uh, political donations. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's Insight podcast by Insurance News. Thank you once again to our panel, John Deeks, Bernice Han, Wendy Pugh and Terry McMullen. Enjoy your week and thank you all for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at editor at insurancenews.com.au. We value your input. You can read all these stories and many others at your leisure at insurancenews.com.au. You can subscribe to the Insight Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and all your favorite podcast platforms now. We look forward to catching up again next week.